Whether in the media, our government, or our schools, Christianity faces tremendous intellectual persecution. This program stands on the intellectual front lines. With disarming honesty, we engage the most difficult issues facing Christians today. I want to welcome you to Theology Unplugged, the radio outreach of Credo House Ministries in Edmond, Oklahoma. We sit down over lattes at the Credo House coffee shop and just talk theology. I'm Michael Patton, president of Credo House Ministries. I'll be leading the discussion along with Tim Kimberly, director of ministries for Frontline Church Edmond, Sam Storms, lead pastor of Bridgeway Church, and finally J.J. Side, pastor of community and discipleship at Bridgeway Church. All right, welcome to Theology Unplugged. I'm Tim here with Michael, JJ, and Sam. And Theology Unplugged, we basically just get in a room and we're unplugged, four guys that love Jesus, that have devoted their lives to the Word of God, and we are talking about problem passages in the Bible. And today we are focusing on Acts chapter 5, verses 1 through 15. Are you guys ready? Uh, I think I'm ready. Okay. It's, uh, I, I, I love this passage because it, it's just so intriguing to me. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, yeah. so so let me read it. And uh, I actually am unplugged. I went too far in my zealousness. It's 1 through 11. Okay. okay. So here we go. But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property. And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land while it remained unsold? Did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard of it. The young men rose, wrapped him up, carried him out, and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. Okay, so guys, when I read this, I think to myself, that's pretty clear, right? That's not like a confusing portion of Scripture. So Sam, why is this a problem passage? What is it about these 11 verses that make it a problem? Um, It isn't a problem for me. Okay, and so, fact, so no, Michael, no. <laughs> moving on. No, I, no, I'm, I'm serious. I think the most surprising thing about this passage is that it surprises people. Mm. In other words, people are shocked and they're scandalized that, um, that God would take the life of a man and his wife in such swift fashion. Uh, people say, where is the mercy of God? Where is the long-suffering? Where is the patience? Why didn't... Uh, why didn't they counsel Ananias and Sapphira mm-hmm. and give them opportunity to repent and come clean? And um, we, I, I think we read passages like this and we're shocked because we presume upon life. We think mm-hmm. that God owes us existence mm-hmm. and we don't realize that the soul that I, I th- sinneth, think, it shall die. I think and Michael's getting ready to disagree I saw with him. You. <laughs> well, he took in a real deep breath just before he's about ready to explode. But no, no, no. But, well, the, the, the problem is, is the way you are 
speaking about it and saying people will say, people will say, that's me. Right. Okay. I, I you, say that. You're surprised by this. I am. I am. I, and I, I'm and looking forward to learning about it and in hearing more what everybody has to say, but it is a shocking passage to me. Okay, so but okay, so Sam, he is not shocked because he he feels like this is like we need to learn that this is who God is potentially can be like this. But now why are you shocked, Michael? Well I, I, I am and just what Sam said, it's hard for me to take this in and say, how do I fit this in to a New Testament framework of grace? Okay. How do I fit this into um it, not only that uh, yeah, I've got two problems, I guess, is why why is this happening here at this time in the church? And number two, it's is really more of a practical thing. Um, and I guess we'll have to get into this. I don't see this happening today. It just seems like such an odd occurrence that happened once. And, uh, you know, I've never heard about something like this happening again. It's never happened in my church where somebody has sinned greatly in some way either lying to the Holy Spirit or some other sin, and drop down dead. Well, uh, are you sure about that? Well, I'm not sure. Yeah, because, well, I was thinking, too, of, I mean, there were times, like, you know, the man who touched the ark and died instantly. Now, that wasn't a lie, but that was in the course of worship uh, where it seemed like everybody was happy here someone drops dead. You know, and even David was upset about that. Yeah, the, JJ, reader, the, readers, back, JJ, the readers of Luke's account uh, knew their Bible, which was yeah. what we consider the Old Testament, and they would have immediately thought of several passages. Leviticus 10, where Aaron's sons offered strange fire. They approached God in an unauthorized way. They were full mm-hmm. of pride. They, they knowingly and high-handedly, premeditatedly violated his commands for how he was to be approached in his holiness. And, and God took their life very swiftly. And then again in Joshua 7, we have the account of Achan who took things that God had clearly said were to be dedicated to him. And what's interesting is in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the Septuagint, the same word is used for what Achan did with the stuff he took and what Ananias did with the money that he kept back. That word kept back is the same word used for what uh, Achan did in Joshua 7. So, so there's great precedent for God dealing swiftly with people who are compromising uh, his community. And part of the problem here is that we're not uh, horrified enough by what they've done. When you see the almost idyllic, otherworldly, unique description of the generosity of this growing faith community and the way in which they were sharing with one another, not out of compulsion, but out of generosity. And there was love and mutuality and fellowship and integrity, lack of hypocrisy. And then into the center of this beautiful thing come two people just like me who have to take something beautiful and cut the heart right out of the center of it mm. for their own selfish advancement. Well, okay, yeah. well, here's the question I have for you guys, okay? Okay. So verse 32 of chapter 4 says, Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. Okay, so we have, we have a whole number of people who are believers, who are of the same heart, of the same soul, and then Ananias lies, okay? Now, does this mean that Ananias and Sapphira were part of this gathering, which would mean that they were believers? So now my question is, were, did Ananias and Sapphira go to heaven because they were saved right after God killed them? <laughs> yes. Yeah, I do believe they're born again. I think that, I believe they're part of the believing community. Okay. And by the way, it's because a, because they died, right? I mean, if they were not part of a believing community, that would be something really odd. You know, where an unbeliever comes in and okay. practices okay. an unbelieving practice of sin. 
you wouldn't expect them to drop down dead. Kind of right. like Paul says, you know, whenever I told you not to associate with uh, with uh, people, I was not talking about people outside the world because, you know, you, you, you that's what we're supposed to do, but the so-called believers within the church. Right. By the way, we need to identify exactly what the sin was. Okay. Um, because Ananias didn't have to sell his property. And once he sold his property, it was within his prerogative to determine how much of the proceeds he would give to the church. So most commentators believe that there's an underlying unspoken assumption here that Ananias had pledged publicly that he would give the totality of the proceeds to the church. And so when he sold the land, in fact, he held back part of the profit and only gave a portion presenting himself as if he were extremely generous and he had given the, to- the, the whole of it. So that's the essence of the lie. He was deceptive. Right. And then also at the end of verse uh, chapter 4, uh, Tim, you were reading it, Barnabas sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. And the suggestion has been made that maybe um, Ananias saw this and Perhaps mm-hmm. he was uh, envious of the praise that was heaped upon Barnabas for mm-hmm. his generosity, and so he was seeking uh, the approval of people. But the bottom line is he sells this land. It's still his money, but evidently he had earlier pledged um, the totality of the proceeds to the church and, in fact, had held back a portion of that. So we have to under- assume that that is going on behind the scenes to make sense of this so that we can even identify it as a sin in the first place. Well, and it's definitely a sin that is being committed, and we don't see any repentance because uh, there's really no time for repentance. But <laughs> but here's the thing. Here's the problem that I have with it is whenever you, you approach somebody pastorally in the church and they come up and they're sinful or— you know, you even see yourself within the church in the context of, of the difficulties that you have in your own life, and you see yourself as sinful, I see this as deceptive. I see this as lying. And then I'm like, wait a minute. Okay, so being deceptive and lying um, may not be one of those things where we approach and say, you know, the, the grace of God can cover this. We're all sinners. And it just gets it gets me it gets scary because I don't have any way to define why it's so bad and how it is that I can keep from committing it and uh, how it is that I tell other people you know to stay away yeah. from something. Well, like and look this. at verse four of chapter five. You know he's being questioned by Peter very carefully. Wasn't the money at your disposal after you sold it? Nobody's twisting your arm. Why is it that you have contrived this deed? in your heart. You haven't lied to man, but to God. And so Peter's highlighting, this was a plot. This was a scheme. It wasn't as though, it wasn't as though he was suspected of looking at pornography and this pastor sort of cross-examining him and he's embarrassed. And so he lies about it. This is someone who, without any provocation, hatches a plot and then seeks to execute it in such a way as to insert hypocrisy right into the center of something with beautiful integrity. By the way, <clears throat> there are so many lessons here. Mm-hmm. I mean, that we obviously can't get into. For example, isn't it stunning that in a powerfully spirit-filled church where incredible miracles were happening, you still have sin present? Mm-hmm. It didn't eliminate uh, the depravity of the human heart. Yeah, that's good. Isn't it stunning also that Luke actually records this? Yeah. I mean, people who question yeah. the, the value and the integrity and historicity of Acts— and we say, well, wait a minute, if, if Luke was trying to write a story to, to promote the church 
And uh, wouldn't he kind of eliminate these kinds of incidents? Yeah, because you don't really have anything else like this in Acts, do we? I mean, can we can we find something where a believing... This is embarrassing. That's yeah. the point. Yeah. It's embarrassing, and yet Luke, in his integrity, records it for us. Also, isn't it interesting That's also, good. That's good. in verse uh, 3, Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled mm. your heart to lie? And yet Ananias is still morally accountable for what he did. So there's that raises that whole question. Satan filled his heart to do it, but Ananias is morally well, accountable me, to ask, God for his choice. Let me ask it's this. kind of funny though that Peter saying like, "Why is Satan?" You know, probably maybe remembered when Jesus said, "Get behind me, Satan, Peter." You know, and so that's a uh, kind of an interesting play there. Yeah, why didn't Peter drop dead at that point? I mean, yeah. But but uh, can we can we say this maybe? There's a this is a particular instance where you have an apostle. Okay, I mean Peter who is looking at this situation and identifying it in a way that sees deeper than just this sin. I mean, it's, there's, there's this corruption within Ananias, maybe, that, is, that runs so deep, but this is one illustration of his corruption. But it's not as if this one act is, is the reason why he fell dead. It's more of he comes in with this Satan-filled heart, this is an illustration of the Satan-filled heart. We're in a community where people are watching and seeing and, and in unity, and it is, it is illustrative teaching the church and, and saying to the church, Satan-filled people will not be in the church. Well, okay, here's, a, here's another along those lines question is what, what I'm wondering too, like we live in a day where pastors really don't have that much power in a certain way. You know, it's like, okay, I go to this church and you know, if I don't like what the pastor says to me, guess what? There's five other churches probably in my, we live in Oklahoma. There's five other churches within walking distance of me that I can go to. Um, but could you see potentially that God had this happen in the life of the church to really elevate the office of pastor potentially as well, that God would use the leaders of the church to be able to have an insight into the heart of, of the people of the church potentially in ways that other people might not. And so here, Peter, as the leader of the church, is able to, uh, in some ways that God may allow them to have a higher view of this brand new thing called the church. That may, that may be possible. One thing, though, that I would like to emphasize and, and have our that, listeners that's, that's notice. That's a nice way for JJ to say, I really don't agree with what you said. <laughs> that may be possible. <laughs> I suppose in, an, in an ulterior universe, that might happen. But let me speak some sense into this moment right now. So go ahead, JJ. I like, to leave, I like to leave the gloves on. You know, yeah. <laughs> um, I'd like to highlight something that's maybe on the opposite side of that, which is simply that you know, Peter <laughs> does a nice way of saying I'm <laughs> Peter doesn't curse him. He doesn't. Uh, he doesn't act like he's the one sentencing him to death or pronouncing judgment. You know, it's easy to to insert that in. He simply says, you not lied to man, but God, verse 5, when Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. So it's very clear, even in the way the passage is constructed, God is judging these people. Peter is the messenger. He's the one who's interviewing them, but Peter's not snapping his fingers or saying, now you shall die. You know, he's not the, the one sentencing these people. He's not yeah, the judge. That's good. Well, you know, in, in, in with what Tim said, you know, it does say right here, and great fear came upon all who heard it. And this is Luke's way of doing things. I mean, Luke is always kind of backing up after he says something or teaches something and saying, this is the result. And I kind of see this as, as Luke's reason for putting this in here is the need for great fear to fall upon 
on all who hear it. And not not just all who were there, but all who heard it, which suggests that it kind of spread around what this, this, this was a crazy thing. It wasn't something that Luke is suggesting is always happening, but it's something that this this event was big. But I got a question for you, Sam. And I know you got something to say because you're taking a deep I breath. <laughs> Maybe that you can incorporate this. But did was was the Apostle Peter surprised at the first death? Well, there's no indication in the text that he was. Well, you, then you did, should just did, know. Just tell us prophetically. Then you was were he there. was he did, did he know that it was going to happen because he is a an apostle, or did he, as JJ said, no, he didn't, or did he cause it to happen in some sense? I I think again we're in we're drawing inferences from things that are unstated in the text. My sense is that Peter did know that God was going to discipline Ananias and Sapphira. We know later in the passage he says to, to Sapphira, uh, "Here's your husband. He's dead. And guess what? They're going to carry you out too." So he obviously knew that it was going to be a repeat performance with his wife. So I would suspect that Peter probably did know and that God was using him. Um, in this way, and and that raises another question. It's a whole other issue. Peter is an apostle, obviously. Yeah. Um, and are we really to look at Peter's role in this as analogous to or comparable to a, a local church senior pastor? I'm not real sure. I would be comfortable saying that. But let me come back to my point. I I, I want to as to why I don't why I'm not surprised by this. Why I'm not shocked. Why this passage is not a, a stumbling block, at least to me. No, do you mention this passage in your books on problem passages? No. Okay. But I might. <laughs> volume four? Yeah, volume three. I should probably do that. I want to argue that what we see here is perhaps, in fact, a remarkable expression of divine mercy. Mm-hmm. The question I ask isn't, mm-hmm. why did Ananias and Sapphira die so soon, but why did they live so long? Given that they were hell-deserving sinners like us all, the mere fact they existed, the mere fact that they had developed into adulthood, the mere fact that they were breathing air and God was supplying them with rain and food and and all the benefits of life is a remarkable expression of undeserved mercy from the Lord. Secondly, could this be, and I'm just asking the question, could this be an expression of the principle we find in 1 Corinthians 11? Remember in Corinth, the people who are abusing the Lord's Supper, getting drunk on the wine, uh, ignoring their, their poorer brethren. And at the end of 1 Corinthians 11, Paul says that um, when we are judged by the Lord, and he's talking about these in Corinth, some of whom were weak, some of whom were sick, and he said, some of you have died physically. And he says, when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. The point being, when there is a Christian who's on a trajectory that, if left untouched, would lead them to apostasy, God mercifully intervenes and takes them out of this life to preserve them eternally. Could that be the case with Ananias and Sapphira? Could God have, could this have been an act of discipline by which God prevented them from doing something even more serious that would have threatened their relationship with him. And that reminds me of Hezekiah's life in some ways, how here Hezekiah is is near death, and then he begs God for more life. And so God gives him more years, and he should have just died. You know, all the years that were given to him were terrible years. You know, so, so that's an interesting point that you bring up, Sam, the idea that in God's mercy, he could have taken them out, brought them to heaven, 
so that they didn't cause more pain on earth and continue to maybe just be, uh, you know, turn into like the, the weird relationship in Corinth where people are, are having all these weird relationships. Yeah. And like Paul said, God disciplined these people in Corinth, physically disciplined them, took their lives, mm-hmm. brought them into heaven so that they would not be condemned with the world. Could okay. that be the reason why Ananias and Sapphira were taken out in the way they were? I mean, well, let's not forget about this. The, the gospel or the good news about what God has accomplished to rescue sinners, right, through the personal work of Jesus is often referred to um, as, as something that's advancing, almost like it has a personality, you know, where even Paul would say defiantly, you know, I'm chained, but they can't chain the Word of God, right? Mm-hmm. Or it talks about the Word of God was advancing, you know. So again and again, there's this narrative of, I like to think of it like an archer aiming at a target. Why does he, why does he not release the string the minute he pulls it back? Well, he has to aim, right? Because, because what he does at that moment is the most important part of the whole act. If you're going to launch the arrow effectively so that it hits the center of the target, you take time and you make sure that you're on course. So let's not miss where this is coming in the history of the church that's already now spanned 2,000 years. We're at the beginning of the church where it repeatedly is said that they were filled with the Holy Spirit. They were filled with the Holy Spirit, and the Word of God was advancing. And now here you have someone who's filled with Satan, mm-hmm who's seeking to disrupt this faith community that has integrity as it's proclaiming the word, and they're about to experience great persecution. If a church is going to stand up under the kind of fierce persecution they were going to face, it can't have a bunch of fakers in there who are really there for other motives. Okay, Michael, I want to come back to you because you raised the issue at the beginning. You said, we live in an age of grace, Mm -hmm. the church age. and my question is that le- that 11th verse, great fear came upon the whole church. First of all, is that a good thing or is that a bad thing? Uh, would, it, would it help the church today that this kind of fear of God's righteous judgment and his holiness uh, be in our hearts? Or is this a bad thing? Um, is there something missing in the life of the body of Christ now in which we don't fear God in the way that we should? So... Help us understand how great fear can come upon the church and that be a good thing at the same time we live uh, in God's grace in, in, a, in, in a season of incredible mercy and kindness. How, how, do we, how do we fit verse 11 into the life of the church today and the expectations of men and women? Well, I think one of the, one of the things we're trying to get us aside is these these. Hey, here's the rule, too. You can't spin his question. You've got to answer it straight away. No, no, no. It's, it's good. And I think it's, it's very good to kind of pull this together. But I think here, here's Does the Does that roadblocks. mean you're going to answer a question or are you spinning still? No, no. I'm, I'm, i got to get rid of these roadblocks. <laughs> I, I'm, <laughs> repre- I'm representing the audience right now. <laughs> okay. Here's the roadblocks that people will come to and they will say, man, number one, uh, what can I do to avoid this? Because I'm scared now. Yeah. Number two, they're going to come and say, wait a minute. Here's what everybody's going to do is they're going to start blaming everybody's death on their sin. I had a guy that I knew that was an elder at a church that that uh, got into um, uh, drugs, uh, got kicked out of the eldership and got into drugs, um, meth, and ended up dying mm-hmm. within a few years. Now, we may look at that and we'd say, look, of course, the meth is the reason why he, he died, but God's judgment came upon him. 
And that's easy to say. But then we're going to look at somebody else and say, you know, they died early. Oh, that must be because he was this type of person or this type of person. And, and Mike, my, what I look at this and I say, this is a prophetic understanding and a prophetic interpretation of someone's death that you and I don't really have unless God comes to us and reveals why someone died because Peter knew why they died. Peter had that information, and I'm trying to remove this roadblock and say we don't have that information often, number one. And then number two, I do see this. I mean, it's really weird, Sam. You say, look at Luke, <laughs> including this embarrassing thing. I mean, it is. And why would it be the story all of a sudden in the progress of Acts right here to show us? I mean, he could have left it out, but what he's trying to do is to say, here's something about the purity of the church. Here's something about the greatness of the church. Here's something about the need of the church to to, uh, see God's activity in it mercifully. And I really do like what you said there. That is helpful, that this is a merciful thing, not only for Ananias and Sapphira, but for the rest of the church. And, and that removes a lot of the fear and makes not the fear that is here that you want us to have and that the Bible wants us to have, but I think other people having, oh my gosh, you know, I, I lied last night to my wife and maybe I'll drop dead, those types of things. And, you know, it's more of a pastoral concern. And that's why I would say, yes, we need to have this type of fear, but how do we deal with this pastorally in the sense whenever somebody is scared sure. about this? You're right. Pastorally, we need to be careful that we do not uh, draw the same sort of conclusive judgments about the cause of somebody's death the way an apostle would have done in the early church. Just because I have somebody who just came down with cancer and perhaps they're about to die, I don't point a finger and say, I bet they lied to the Holy Spirit, or I bet they behind the scenes have been living in, uh, in unrepentant sin. We do not have the authority to do that. We hope you've enjoyed today's broadcast. If it's blessed you, they'd love to hear from you. And don't forget to join the group again next week for another edition of Theology Unplugged. Theology Unplugged is a listener-supported ministry of the Credo House. They're a theological hub and coffee shop, and their address is 109 Northwest 142nd Street in Edmond, Oklahoma, 73013. They're open Monday through Friday, 7 a.m. to 9 p.m., and Saturdays, 9 a.m. to 7 p.m. Please consider this your official invitation. You're invited to come and visit the Credo House and discuss today's program or take a tour of the theologically rich surroundings. You might also enjoy one of their signature drinks like a Luther latte or a Nicene mocha. In fact, if it's your first time in the Credo House and you mention that you heard their program on Bot Radio Network, you can have the drink of your choice for free. For more information or to support this ministry, visit credohouse.org.